All right, hi again, everybody, and welcome to I'm Interested. I'm Greeny, and um, my guest today fascinates me. This is the perfect definition of the title I'm Interested for this podcast. So for those of you who are new, I have been interviewing sports figures for the majority of these interviews. But I picked three areas of life that I'm personally interested in outside of sports. One of them is business, one of them is journalism, and one of them is writing. I have written five books. Um, I have dozens of books in print. Um, and my guest today has 70 million books in print. Everything he writes opens at number one on the New York Times bestseller list um, and is, is one of the most successful authors in the United States uh, and is someone of whom I'm an enormous fan. So it's my pleasure to welcome Harlan Coben to I'm Interested. Harlan, thank you very much for doing this. Great to be here, Greeny. Thanks for having me. Man. My very first observation when you walked in the door is that you were much bigger than I thought you'd be. I'm sure yes. the millions of people who read your books and see the author photo would be surprised to see that you look a lot more like Myron Bolitar than than you look like me, which yeah. is candidly what I was expecting you to look like. <laughs> it's hard to capture also my raw animal magnetism in photography. True. So it's just, yeah, I'm bigger than you would expect. I had that yeah. thought as well. And, and, and you were, you this is were, why I write fiction, by the way. You were an athlete. I mean, you, you actually were an All-American? I was, well, I was an All-American collegiate basketball player, but what I leave off of that sentence was I wasn't picked All-American by Sports Illustrated Parade. No, I was picked All-American by the Jewish Post and Opinion of Indianapolis. Uh, I'm a Jewish All-American. They found okay. five Jews, me, Heshi Moisha, and two guys from Yeshiva that year, and they made a Jewish All-American basketball team. Well, that's, I mean, I think after the NBA All-Star game, that's pretty much <laughs> pretty the one much you want. It, yeah. So It's really the, the honor everyone's looking for. <laughs> well, it's funny because being Jewish, I know that uh, I always, I make this joke all the time on my, my previous show, Mike Golick, we worked together for yeah, 18 years. I always say we come from different sports families. Uh, he comes from one kind of sports family. His father played football. His brothers played football. His sons played football. I come from a Jewish sports family. We had season tickets uh, <laughs> growing up. And, and, and so I, that was exactly yeah. what I was guessing. But you, I mean, you walk in here, for those of you are listening to this, you're not seeing it. You're, you're a pretty big athletic looking guy. Well, thanks. I've been trying to keep in shape. What do you do to keep in shape? You're 56 Lift. years old. Lift. You lift weights. Yeah, lift. See, I don't ever lift. I don't. Yeah. I find that very. I do it and I stop, then I get out of shape, and I feel crappy about myself. Do it again, rinse, repeat, like shampoo. You know, nothing sticks. Okay, no, I have no interest yeah. in that whatsoever. But okay. I stay home all day, so I have to do something. So, so, so writing. So, yeah. uh, there are so many things about this that I'm interested in, and let me tell you how I came to become a fan cool. of Harlan Coben. So I, I um, have written books all of my life. I grew up in a bookstore. So I grew up around books. I fell in love with books as a kid. My parents were writers and they were, they owned a bookstore in New York City called the Complete Traveler Bookstore for 30-something years on wow. 35th in Madison. I worked there every summer in high school and all of that. And so I've always grown up around books and I've always liked it. And I still say to this day that walking into a bookstore and seeing a copy of, of one of my books is more personally satisfying to me than anything I've ever done yeah. in broadcasting. <clears throat> but the problem with my books is that is that comparatively speaking, nobody buys them. <laughs> um, and, and, and by normal human standards, my books sell fairly well, but, but certainly it's very hard. And so what I decided to do is I, I, I couldn't help but notice that every single week on the New York Times bestseller list, if there are 15 fiction books listed, 12 of them are thrillers. Right. So I decided I better start writing thrillers if I want anyone to read these books. And so I decided to, the best way to start writing them was to start reading them. So I went out and I bought a whole bunch of thrillers and that, and, 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 and your name came up in recommendations from people and whatever it is. And so I started reading the books and, um, and I just loved it. I mean, immediately you have, I described you, I think, in one uh, post that I wrote as the most eminently readable writer of thrillers that we have. You write like a person talks. So that's my first question is when you are writing, do you say the words out loud? Are you actually giving them a voice? Because all of your books, it feels to me, are narrated in the first person. They're narrated by a person and they all sound like they are your voice. So is, is that your voice talking uh, while we're reading? They're my voice. I mean, I've, I've written books in first. I've written third. I've written mix of first and third. I've even written some parts in second. But the style is trying to be conversational. I mean, okay. I want it to be like you and I are sitting across, you know, it's the old, fa you know, it's actually old fashioned storytelling. It's we're sitting around a fire. And the way I'm writing is I'm writing like there's a, like there's a knife against my neck. And if I bore you, I'm dead. We are, cavemen sitting on a fire if i bore you you are going to pick up a club and whack me over the head with it right the single greatest piece of writing advice comes from my old friend elmore leonard 
who used to say, I try to cut out all the parts you'd normally skip. Huh. Isn't that genius? Yeah. I mean, that's just the best piece of writing advice I've ever heard. So I write with that kind of energy. Uh, I write, a, you know, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, I ask myself, is this compelling? Is this gripping? Is this moving the story forward? And if it's not, i got to change it. It doesn't mean you, you don't have larger themes or descriptions or all those things that make a book great. You have to have that. But even those have to be compelling. Something can't just be read. It's got to be read as something. The grass can't just be beautifully, you know, uh, the lawn can't just be beautifully cut. It has to look like a PGA event. You know, it has to, you have to add something to make the person keep reading. And, and when you say you've, you've written in, in third person as well, I, I'm sitting here going through my mind. It feels like it's first person yeah. anyway. It, yeah. it feels like there is all the Myron Boltars, but one are actually third person, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah. Which is to say that you were, you were talking about him yeah. as opposed to him talking, but it is, it feels to me as though it is a voice describing what you were seeing, even yes. if the voice does not belong to one of the characters. That's correct. So it feels like first person, even if in, in reality it is not. Okay. Right. I'm glad that you cleared that up. So I remember reading once John Irving was my favorite author when I was, um, in college and, right. and, and afterwards. I remember him saying, that uh, Olympic athletes train and practice what they do every single day. So it shouldn't, no one should be surprised that he writes six to eight hours a day every single day. Do you write like that every single day for practice? He, he says that's how he stays sharp. He feels he's still getting, I think he was in his late fifties or sixties when he wrote this, that he was still getting better because he was practicing by doing it every single day. Um, I do it a lot. Um, if I don't write every day, I think about it every day. I'm a little bit obsessed with it. I'm not great company. My friends sort of know that they'll be talking to me and my eyes will drift off and I'll be in, in, in la-la land thinking about fiction. So the, the story's always churning in my head. It's not necessarily great quality as a human being, but it's a great quality as a writer. But yes, and I don't get why people don't get this. Writing is like anything else. If I invite the best athlete in the world to go out and take some foul shots, they're going to suck, right? You and I both play golf, and we both know that the only way your short game can be decent is if you play a lot. And I know I will never have a decent short game because <laughs> right. I'll never play enough, but I've accepted that. But somehow, because we all can write, we all have this idea that you don't have to work at it. Writing is one of the few activities also where quantity will inevitably make quality. The more you write, the better at it you're going to get. There's just no question about it. doesn't mean everybody can write just like not everybody can be a pro basketball player. But you have to you have to do it all the time. You really do. Okay, so that. by the time this conversation is over, I, I'm hoping that you will have taught me and anyone listening how to write a best-selling thriller. <laughs> there we go. Because that really was the self-serving purpose of this. <laughs> but I have a few other things that I'm interested in before we get to that. How okay. did you first decide you wanted to be a writer? Because I know that I got into broadcasting because I figured I needed to do something to pay the bills while I was trying to write novels and then a few twists and turns along the path of life that I didn't expect to take. And here I am 30 years later. So, so when, when in your life did you decide my aspiration is to be a writer? The sort of two, first of all, I hate the, you know, you'll ask writers this and most of the writers will say, I always knew I was going to be a writer. When I was a three month old fetus, <laughs> I had a pen in my mother's womb. And then uh, my favorite was the kids when they were five years old would gather around me in the playground. And I, like I got beaten up in my neighborhood and I didn't grow up in a tough neighborhood. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah. So, um, I never kind of buy that. Um, there's two places I, I can specifically kind of remember. One was around the age of 15 or so. My father gave me a copy of William Goldman's Marathon Man, which is my first adult thriller where while reading it, I was sitting there saying, you could put a gun to my head and I would not put this book down. What a magical thing it must be to be able to do this for a living. I don't think anything much more than that it was more subconscious. When I was in college, I worked a job in the Costa del Sol of Spain as a tour guide, not because I'm a brilliant linguist, but because my grandfather owned the travel agency. It was nepotism, pure and simple. And I said to myself, I got to write a, a book about this experience. I just have to write a book about it. And one day I did. And once I did, that book, by the way, was terrible. It was like most first novels should be. It was pompous and absorbed, self-absorbed and all of those things. But I got the writing virus. I don't know how else to put it. And from then, I just knew this is what I kind of wanted to do. I still had a regular job for eight years. What was um, the job? I worked in the, in the travel industry. I ran this company called Club ABC Tours for my grandfather from when I graduated college in 84 until 92. And I really didn't have my first New York Times bestseller until 2001. You know, that's the other thing. People think, uh, you know, I've got emails from people saying, you know, I've written two ebooks on my own. Why aren't I selling like you and Patterson? You know, it's not that easy. In those days, I took my first New York Times bestseller was actually my 10th published novel. 
Okay, that gives me some hope. Yeah. Because I've published two p- novels so far and stay in the game. That's a lot of it. It's just staying in the game. Yeah, but it takes it's it is it is I find it and and I never have done it full time, of course. Right. So, but I find it painstakingly hard. People ask me to describe what it's like to write a novel or anything, and I always say like it's it is the it is the loneliest experience in the world. It's something that you do by yourself, yep. and I because I'm trying to find time to do it. I'm doing it in the library on a laptop after yep. work. I'm doing it on an airplane, uh, which is the best place to write. Uh, can I, I love I love airplanes alone. too. Yeah. yeah. So so that's it, I find it so lonely and yep. and and um, difficult. I mean, is the really the only word I could when you first started or even now is it is it lonely and difficult for you writing? It still is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm. I'm, uh, I may be socially adept, but I'm an introvert at heart. So I do like being alone and you have to kind of like being alone. But one of the reasons I got into TV more recently was after I think I just finished my 31st novel. That's a lot of time alone in a room. Yes. That's a lot of time. You know, if you get a report card, it just does not play well with others. <laughs> and I kind of missed that aspect of it a little bit. So yeah, it is, it is lonely, but. That's just part of it. I don't, I don't buy any of the magic crap that people always, oh, you know, the characters come to life and they, and I'm not lonely because the characters hang with me and all that nonsense. Um, people actually worked. say that. Oh, it drives me crazy. Yeah, that I would be a, a I tough could do a whole routine on what writers say that, the other one that writers say it drives me nuts, which I know you will agree with is the writer who says, I don't care if anyone reads it. Oh. I write it only for myself. <laughs> like that's like saying I talk only for myself. Right. I don't care if anyone listens. It's like having a radio show that no one's listening to. Right. There's a word for that, but it's not writing or, <laughs> or broadcasting. Right. So you know, you want the audience. Uh, uh, it's the Berkeley tree falling in the woods. If I write a book and no one reads it, do I exist as a writer? The answer to me, which was surprised, is no. You have to have an audience. Um, and, the, uh, and the more people who read it, I think, the more you exist as a writer. It's a little bit, there's an Arab expression, when one man dies, a whole universe dies. But when one of you who's listening says, gee, I'm going to read this guy, and, and Myron Bolotar and Wynn and the rest of those characters comes to life in their heads slightly different from everybody else, that's still the part that jazzes me. That's I'm still assuming the part if you're me. listening to this that, that you have an idea of who he's talking about, but Myron Bolotar is the lead character in many of your books, mm-hmm. but not uh, and, and 11 all of the 31. 11 31. Uh, and he's a sports agent, and he's a former basketball player, and I, yeah. I love him. But okay, so let yeah. me go back to where do you write? Where physically? Where are you? Well, this is another question I do differently than most people. I don't have a steady spot. I use, I find something that works. I use it until it stops working, and then I find something. Give me an else. example. It's like riding a horse. The horse dies. I find another one. I'll get, well, here's a weird one. So about two or three books ago, I was riding poorly, and I was coming into the city, and I wasn't in the mood to drive, so I took an Uber. And I felt the Jewish guilt about spending the money, so I'm justifying in my head, well, the Uber's $50, it cost me $60 to park, you know, the whole thing. But I'm sitting in the back and I'm feeling guilty about it, so I start, I start writing. And I write really well. On a laptop? Uh, this was on paper for the most part, oh, but I can do both, I do both. Um, and so for the next three weeks, I took an Uber everywhere I went. You were mentioning an airplane. I write really well on airplanes too. When I'm doing that, I'll actually try to get on more flights, trains, I were, for a while I worked at a stop and shop, had a, like a coffee shop next to the deli. I came home smelling like olive loaf every day. Hmm. But I worked really well there for about four months. And then it wasn't, I wasn't working so well, so I changed up. I read a lot of coffee shops, a lot of libraries. I constantly change up. Mostly because also, most, when I was writing, I have four kids. And I don't care who you think you are, the idea that you're going to be writing at home while your kids are there is, a, is just you know, nonsense. So I would leave the house and find spots to work in. Sometimes I like white noise. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like listening to classical music when I write. Sometimes hard rock. Sometimes whatever. All those moods for me change. Other writers that you will speak to have a very set way. They have a certain room they go into at exactly 6 a.m. I'm not like that. Okay. I, I want to ask you about um, both you and James Patterson and many others, um, but you're the two that I'm most aware of have created series for younger readers. Yeah. Uh, Mike Lupico, who's a friend of mine also, has been writing for yep. years, writing books for younger readers. Yep. And I worry a lot about books. Like, like I always say to my kids, there is one great pleasure in life they will never know, and that is the joy of a cup of coffee and the newspaper. There is something about a newspaper and a cup of coffee in the morning, which I enjoyed for the first 40 years of my life, that people in, in our civilization enjoyed for countless hundreds of years in life, that is over. It's just over. Right. Uh, my kids, your kids, it's just right. not going to happen anymore, right. which I think is a tragedy, but that's for a different podcast. 
Is that going to happen to books? Is that the future of books? I, I, I follow this closely because, again, I have an, a personal right. attachment and interest in it well beyond anything I may ever write again. Is Are you worried, because I, I, you and Patterson, again, you're writing all these books for younger people. Are you worried that that a generation or two down the road that books are going to become what newspapers are now? Could be. Um, the one thing I do know is whatever I predict is going to be wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong about everything, and everybody else is wrong about it, too. No one predicted this last election. No one thought a guy in Algiers would set himself on fire and start the Arab Spring. No, everyone gets it wrong. Everyone got e-books wrong. Everyone gets it all wrong. So I try not to worry about what I can control. The one thing I will say is I have a, I actually have a great deal of confidence in young people in terms of they'll find, you know, they'll find something or they'll do some way of doing it. It's not as though we are, we're better. It's just the, the technology. So when people ask me, do you want people to read ebooks or, or, or on print? I don't care if you read on stone tablets. And in my job and your job as a writer, we are the content side. And so if our content is good enough, they're going to find us. Be it on a podcast or be it on a radio or be it on, on Sirius or whatever it's going to be. And it's the same thing with books that if you're content, I just worry about the content. So the answer is I don't know. I suspect that books are going to, to change. But then again, you know, you look, there was no Harry Potter kind of sensation when we were younger. Right. There was no Hunger Games. Hunger Games. There was none of that stuff where the whole, all kids were into it in a way that you and I were into baseball cards. Right? So, that's, you know, the kind of the next generation is going to ruin everything has, has been said for a lot of, a lot of, my kids read a lot. My kids read a fair amount. Uh, I think the bigger problem actually for them is school gives them so much damn homework that they have no time to read. They have much more homework than we have now. We got to ease up on that a little bit and let them have more time to fun I read. I so agree with that. Yeah. My goodness. And we're going to get sidetracked here, but right. I'm so totally and thoroughly in agreement with you. And the other thing that school does is they make kids read wrong, which yes. is to say, my kids will come home with a book and they'll be reading a novel that I have read that I love and they are annotating it. They have to stop every several pages and make little notes on a note card about what they think the character was thinking at that moment. And and, and I want to pull my hair out. And so would you had do yeah. any hair. Um, <laughs> but 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 what I always I mean a, a book is like a work of art. It is a piece of art unto itself. Yeah. And and it is meant to be experienced by each person differently. And so like everyone in a classroom, I want to say to these kids teaching English to high school kids, every single person in a class is not going to get the same thing out of this book that you have assigned them to read. In a perfect world, they will each get their own, they will each draw their own conclusions and, and feel whatever feelings they are moved to themselves. And they will have nothing to do with whatever you think they, they should be feeling right. either. And so that's the other part of that, that not only are they doing far too much work, I totally agree with you, right. but I don't even like the way they teach reading right. for the most part. Well, also, you know, it's much funny you mentioned having a, a family bookstore and your love of, of books coming from that. I, I, we didn't own a family bookstore, but it was similarly... I wish there was a way that we could bring that back. But when I was a kid, um, my pa- our, you know we didn't have that much money. So on Sundays, what we would do is we'd come to New York. There was one Barnes & Noble annex back in those days. I'm going way back. And you could fill up a brown paper bag for $5 of kind of remaindered or used books down in that area. So we would spend the whole day there. The entire family would be reading in the store and things like that. And... I think that's one of the things that gives you a love and, and, and respect to books. Now that, like, this is why I thought Amazon, frankly, who, who I'm, you know, great company, I never thought it would work because I'm like, who's going to want to just press a button? The whole fun is to go to the bookstore and smell the books and, and walk around. And again, I was wrong, which is why I shouldn't be in business and should be making stuff up for a living. Right. That's exactly right. And, and I agree with you. And so. It just is what it is. Right. I mean, I've, I've noticed that change over the course of the first book that I published was in 2006. And I remember how many people came to the book signings right. then. And then the, the last one that I published was eight years later. And I noticed that there were fewer people. And I said to the people at the bookstore, you know, my show has gotten bigger, not smaller. Right. And they said, yeah, but people don't buy the books anymore. They're not going to have you come sign their iPad or their, right. um, you know, the, all the different e-readers that, that exist out right. there. Um, and so they don't come to those events. So it just is what it is. Yeah. Now, again, Harlan Coben with me here. So now let's get to the um, let's get to the stuff that really okay. matters so i mentioned <laughs> this is purely self-serving go ahead because i need to learn how to write a thriller so i've been trying to write one and and i don't know what the hell i'm doing because the way i have written novels is i sit down i have an idea of where i want it to end i have an idea of who the characters are and then i just sit down and i start writing and then i kind of edit it as i go but i don't know where it's going right. now there's no way in hell you can do that right because your books are so intricately plotted that my theory was 
that you write them backwards, that you write the end, and then you start working your way back from the end. You say, okay, I know he is going to have done it. And in order for him to have done it, she has to have done this, and then he has to have done that. And then you actually write it backwards. You're nodding at me. So are you telling me that I basically have it right? No, you're completely wrong. But wrong. that's okay. Completely I'm still wrong. nodding to be polite. Okay. <laughs> Very good. I do. I, I know the beginning and I know the end. I know the last twist. I know a few things along the way. But that's about it. Um, it's, I see a couple of goalposts. I, I compare it to traveling from our home state of New Jersey to California. I'm going to end up in L.A. I may go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo, but I pretty much end up in L.A. I may know a couple spots I'm going to hit along the road, but I just know the beginning and the end. Um, another great quote from, is from E.L. Doctorow says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. So, no, I mean... But that's how my mind works. My mind works, uh, even when I'm watching, if I'm watching an episode of Law and Order, I'm figuring in my head 10 different ways a story could go if they wanted to. This person could do it. And that's just how my, whatever natural gifts were given, uh, I, I was better in math than I was in English when I was a student. I'm able to see and figure out most of that stuff and keep it in my head without writing it down. I want to mention we are talking, by the way, in the Red Farm restaurant on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, near where uh, where Harlan has a, a place in the city. And so, if you hear any noise behind us, that's that's uh, people are actually it's here having dumplings right now, yeah. which look delicious. The by Pac-Man the way, Pac-Man dumplings. Try them if you come here. Okay, Pac-Man perhaps we'll have lunch after be good. we conclude right. the conversation. But so, okay, I want to pick up there because I. I'm not going to sit here and say I don't believe you because obviously I don't think you're lying to me, but I can't believe it because there are there is a twist. It seems to yeah. me like on every other but that's page. How, but I'm, I'm writing to again. I'm writing to try to keep that going. I don't want to bore you or myself, so I'm looking for that moment. I'm always sort of saying, "What have I seen before? What am I expecting? How can I defy that and yet keep it in the world of realism?" First thing you know, first you come up with the idea. Has to be a really complete. How, how, idea. how, how, tell me what you mean by the idea. Like, well, like, this, is, is that just the, the entire arc of it? Or is it just this kid's gonna get kidnapped and his family's gonna be looking for him and yeah. then they're gonna find him when he's 20? Usually it's the hook and the ending. So okay. I'll give two quick examples. Yeah. So a few, and how they came about. Then they sound a little neater and cleaner than they usually are. I wrote a book a few years ago called Promise Me and I use the same twist as right now on Netflix Safe if you wanna watch eight episodes. There's my quick plug. But, so, I, I overheard a couple of teenagers talking about drinking and driving. And I pulled them aside and I said, promise me, title of the book, you won't do that. Here's my my cell phone. I don't care what you're on. I don't care what you're doing. I won't tell your parents. Just promise me you won't get in a car with someone who's been drinking and driving. Now, maybe a lot of people that are listening have had the same experience. But nothing else happened. But fiction writing is asking, what if? Well, what if a teenage girl went out one night? What if she calls my hero? at 3 in the morning to pick her up in New York. What if my hero picks her up, drops her off at what he thinks is a friend's house, the next day, she's gone. She's disappeared. Okay, that's a cool opening, right? So now I have that. Now I have to think, well, that's cool, but how does that possibly happen? So now I spend a lot of time thinking about what's the answer? Where is that girl? Is she alive? Is she dead? Where is she? When I have, When I'm comfortable with those two things, I can usually start writing. So that's it. I mean, you're starting just with that because for those of you who are just interested in this conversation because you find it interesting but have not read Harlan Coben's books, between that and the end, 7,000 things are going to happen, (laughs) (laughs) right? I I mean, I like twists. The book is 270 pages long and 540 Uh, things happen. Well, the other thing is you start thinking, okay, who are her parents? What can, what secrets do they possess? Does she have a sibling? What secret does that sibling possess? Does she go to school? Does she have friends? What goes on at that school? What goes on with the friends? The person who dropped her off, what's he actually like? Are the police going to suspect him? How did he take that drive? Was there a CCTV camera that picks it up? So I just, in four seconds, off the top of my head, gave you a lot of things that you could spin into narratives and surprises. And, and, and those decisions are not made ahead of time, is what no. you're telling me. You don't, you don't sit no. down and plot that out. I'm no. gonna, then I'm going to get to the brother. Then I'm going to introduce no. this. I will start with that. Basically, if I recall that book correctly, I start uh, – there's, there's a personal angle on that because it's Myron Boltar. But I start that with, with, with the, the promise, the phone call, the picking up, the dropping off, and then gets a call the next day that she's missing. And then as I'm writing it, I'm thinking about these things and looking which one I'm going to go to next. That's incredible to me. And so you're just, and then I assume that sometimes you have to go back and change stuff, right? Almost because never. now this, 
almost, almost never. never. Almost so never. something happens that doesn't become inconsistent with something that happened before. Almost, it's all, uh, at this stage of the game, it's almost by faith. It, it does not happen. It ha- I, I, in 30-something books, is if it's happened two or three times. That you've had to go back and rewrite anything. Yeah. Oh, rewrite rewrite anything major no very very rarely it's not like i go oh wait a minute this person did it now i got to go back and change something 70 pages ago almost never it seems to just it seems to just go there is there a formula so i'm yeah. friendly with jane green who's a very very successful right. novelist sort of in the romance yes um, no, i know jane she's great uh phase yeah we're family yeah. friends great and uh and 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 she has told me many times um and her books for those of you who don't know her books open at number one in yep, the uk every single book that she writes um, and she's a really smart, fun, cool yeah. person. But, but she told me that her books are very formulaic. That she, she basically, there is a formula to what she does. She knows when she's gonna bring in the next character, when, sort of in a, in a formulaic fashion, how she's gonna get from point A to point Z. Do you have that? Do you have a formula? That I don't. I mean, I, I kinda wish I did. I think it'd be easier. Each book, for me, is a unique torture. I mean, you were talking about how, how difficult it is. That never sort of stops. Um, for me, it's more like if you can picture a giant field of tall grass. And so the first time you write a book, you're slicing through it to get to the end. And you have no idea how long it's going to take. You don't know if you're ever going to reach the end. But you can slice anywhere, right? Because the, it's just wide open. And finally, you reach the end. The second book, you're going back to that front of that, and you're doing it all over again. You can't follow the same path. You know a little bit more because you know around how long it's going to take. But it's no easier because now you can't kind of follow... You have to stay off of that that path. It never gets easier. There's certainly probably, if you look back, because I always write about missing people. That's the one thing people say, oh, you know, this one is not a missing person. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. It's like saying to Agatha Christie, you write about murders, or to <laughs> Philip Roth, you write about Jews. That's what I do. I do missing people. If you don't want missing people, read somebody else. <laughs> um, but outside of that, not really. Uh, well, people say, oh, you know, you did this a lot. You do this a lot. Yeah, I've written 31 books. You're going to find some things that are going to repeat in terms of that, but not consciously. And I, don't, I never say, this is the time I have to bring up this thing, this is the time I have to bring up that thing. No, it doesn't happen. Taking Myron Bolotar and, and his set of friends yep. out, Yep. who are the characters? So, so you've got a, a main character. I'm, I'm thinking of the book, I'm Missing You. I ain't missing, missing you, you at all. Right. So, so that, that, that was a main character who but, I thought was really interesting, and he wasn't Myron Bolotar. So who is he? Is he is he a person? Do you do you base him on a person that you know, so you know what he looks like yeah. and how he talks and how he thinks and what he says? Is it a person? Well, yes and no. Not I mean, just him, but in general. I've had you know I've written also I think four or five with, with the lead character was female, which I thought would be harder and end up being easier, including missing you. Um, but I, what I have, you know you, the 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 real answer is they're all a little bit of me, and that includes the villains. They're all. I mean, the whole idea is that. They're probably more like you than you think. I mean, I always like to think Myron Bolotar is me, right? We're both 6'4", both basketball players, blah, blah, blah. But as I've gotten older, I realize there's a lot, oh, there's a lot of me that's Win, his sidekick. There's a lot of me that's the villain. Um, but usually I just try to figure out what the per, I, you know, that takes time. Like right now I'm writing one where the character is completely different than me. Um, he had a tra- tragedy when he was young, lives in the woods, which is, you know, I'm Jewish. We don't live in the woods, as we all know. So it's very, very different from me. Uh, I just try to, I just, it sounds so corny. It's the hardest part to describe is how you develop character. I just try to get in their head and see the world that way. The one thing you have to have as a writer, you have to have it, is empathy. Doesn't mean you're a good person, not sympathy or where you do anything about it, but empathy. And that is, I have to, and you as a writer have to, be able to get into that person's skin, whoever he is or she is, and be able to understand what they're feeling and what they're going through. That's the best answer I can give on that one. Character is very hard. It's, that's the most, I think the most organic part of it and takes the least effort, but it has to, but it's the most important part that takes the least amount of effort. So it's all just imagination though at the end of the day. I mean, you're, just inv- you're inventing a character and imagining, because when you say you, you have empathy for them, you have right. empathy for a fiction, a fictitious yeah. person. Like I, yes. I can try and understand what you're thinking right now because right. you and I are sitting here talking to each other, right. but I didn't create you. Right. So if I create you, right. then I'm trying to put my, myself into the head of someone whom I'm inventing every step of the way. So that's the part of it I don't fully it's understand. Hard. And it's hard. And frankly, there's, it's the hardest part for me to kind of explain also. I will take bits and pieces of people, like maybe he'll be somebody who works on the radio. Or a lot of times, a lot of my characters are doctors because my wife's a doctor. So I've known a lot of them. Um, I've been with my wife for many years, so I saw medical school. I saw the internships. I find them 
fascinating in some reasons why they became doctors. So I sort of take that and then I'll take another part of somebody else and I'll, I'll mash it together. I'll throw in a few tragedies in their life. Why is this person, why is he here right now? You know, Myron Boltar always says man plans, God laughs. But why are we here right now at the Red Farm Restaurant in New York? What has led us both to this point? What about your background, your parents, your education? What has led you here? I will think about that a lot until I kind of come up with how this character is going to be. Now, how long, from soup to nuts, how long does it take you to write one of your books? Right, I, it's about nine months I compared to childbirth. I mean, the best part is the idea, <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> nine end, months. You just want to, but I'm a I feel writer. like you have a book that comes out pretty much every year. Every year. Every year, this year not because I changed publishers and so I was delayed a little bit and I was doing a lot with the TV stuff, but uh, the next one will be out in March. March is normally my time of the year. Uh, so yeah, it takes about nine months. And, and, and I'm also a streak writer, so at the very end, if a book is 400 pages long, okay, let's just say it's 400 pages long, I usually write the last 200 pages in one month. Usually the last 100 pages in one week, usually the last 40 to 50 pages in one day. It's not a good day, you don't want to be hanging around me that day. My kids are like, throw daddy a banana and run, you know, shh, and run. So I do, you know, you, because I've been seeing that end. Because you've got it. In my head for so long. And then I reach a stage of the book where I can see the rest of it. You know, I've been struggling, I've been struggling, I've been going through the weeds, and now I see it. Now I see the ending. Once I see that ending, nothing stops me, nothing gets in the way. I can write 24 hours straight sometimes until I get there. Maybe a mess. That's did a really important. If I can tell the people and, and you one important thing is turn off the part of your brain that tells you you suck. We all have it. I have it. I still think it every day. Every day. Because only bad writers think they're good. The rest of us just suffer with it. But you have to turn off that voice and just write because it's not as bad as you think. You're going to rewrite it anyway. Just get the dang thing down on paper. And that's the hardest part of writing, as you were saying earlier. By far. I'm, I'm interested in what you said a minute ago, though, about turn off the voice in your head that says you suck. Because that can right. apply to a lot of different things. Everything. How do you do that? How do you shut that voice off? I don't. I mean, some days it's just there and I have to play through it. You know, I, the other thing is you have to treat writing like a job. It's the most, that's the other big thing. You know, uh, it was an old saying that says writers, uh, amateurs wait for the muse to arrive. The rest of us just get to work. The plumber can't say, oh, today I can't do pipes. I'm too important. I treat it the same way. My dad was a working man, woke up every day, worked from nine to six, came home. I'm the same way. I have to treat it like a job. I, and, and, and by the way, the, you know, Philip Roth wrote that line I just mentioned. The greatest writers in the world act that way. It's only the schmucks who kind of act like, oh no, I'm an artist. I can't really do it unless the mood is right. That's nonsense. You have to get to work and, and work. That's the, so some days I'll just suffer. Some days I'll just sit there and stare, but I won't go and, and, and watch TV or, hang out at the mall i'm going to keep working are, are there days that you don't write anything yeah sure there are days that you will sit there with the intention of writing something and yep. you just nothing will come yep yeah i haven't how are those days they suck <laughs> i would think <laughs> they suck see because my problem and again i'm yeah. doing this and and, and 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 i opened it i hope with the appropriate comparison i have yes. dozens of copies so i'm in no way trying to compare myself to no. you yeah, but I on those it. days i just I, give up quickly yeah like i'll just say like, I, just, I just don't have it today it's right. not that i think i'm too good for it but i will just recognize i don't have it that day you don't do that you are going to some stick days i will but most days i don't and if i do it i'll feel terrible about myself the rest of the week it's you know, life is about balance, right? Your, your marriage, your kids, your family, your economic, whatever your situation is. If I'm not writing well, my life is out of balance and everybody knows it. I'm grumpier. So I may do that, but I'll suffer. And there's always a voice in my head that says you should be writing. Always. Wherever I'm driving the kids in the, in the van to, on a carpool, there's always that voice in my head, that guilt, that, that Jewish mother voice in my head saying, you know, you should be home writing. If you don't have that voice, you probably shouldn't be writing. I've lived my whole life with that voice. <laughs> we'll continue my conversation with Harlan Coben in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about LinkedIn, which has been our sponsor since we began this podcast. And we're so grateful for that partnership. You know, the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And that's why it's so important to find the right person. Where do you find that individual? You could try posting on the job boards. But can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Instead, Find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. 
LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. That way your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So here's what you do. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. You'll get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. $50 off your first job post, linkedin.com slash greeny. Terms and conditions apply. Sure. So there are a few other things I'm interested in talking to you sure. about now that you've taught me how to write a best-selling thriller. <laughs> um, let's talk about the series on Netflix. Yes. Tell me all about that. So Safe is on Netflix, right? I have two series on, on Netflix. One is called Safe and one is called The Five. But Safe is the new one with Michael C. Hall. Eight episodes. We filmed in England. Um, it, 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 I just, just watch it. I want to tell you what it's about. I guarantee you'll be hooked after... Um, the first uh, episode also stars Amanda Abington, who some of you may know from the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberpatch. She played Mrs. Watson. And it's just eight episodes. And, you know, one of the things we, we were talking about earlier before we got on was it has a real ending. I, and this is one of the things I, I, I argue with networks on. I'm not going to give you a cliffhanger so I can sell season two. My shows are designed to be one season. You are going to be surprised in episode eight. You're going to get all the answers in episode eight. And if you want to watch another show, I do great. But I'm not going to force this back by not giving you an answer. It's like a book to me. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, I because I, that. There's one thing I can't stand, in, in, and I read a lot more books than I watch TV series. But if there's one thing I can't stand in either one, right. it is when the ending was predictable. I like a, a, an ending that se- seemed predictable, and then the, and you pull the rug out and change something or whatever it may be. But right. if I saw an ending coming... A mile away, and then that's what it winds up being. I always find myself very disappointed. Yep. Okay. I scrolled through the last several months of your Twitter. <laughs> Uh-oh. So here are the things that I find you tweeting about. Let's start with golf. Yeah. I love golf as much as I love anything in the world, and I can tell from your Twitter feed that you do as well. I love watching it. I love when I play golf, I only like to play golf with other people who want to talk about golf. Like, I don't want to. <laughs> and, and there are so many people, even those listening to this conversation, who don't get it. Right. So I, I try to explain it, and I can't. Right. How do you explain to someone who doesn't get it? So many people will tell me, my father thought golf was boring. Right. So many people think golf is boring. Right. How would you explain your feelings about golf? I, I took it very late, but does it, I think part of it is that you love golf and you hate golf. I mean, your emotions run really hot and cold. It's weird that you care so much about something that is completely meaningless. I mean, no one, you know, you go out there, I'm playing in the Pro-Am at Ridgewood in a couple of days. And I'll be nervous about it. And I know no one cares how bad you're playing. It's an amazing thing. It's wonderfully selfish. You only care about yourself. And I think what probably appeals to you and me both is golf is a metaphor for everything in life. I can make a golf metaphor for literally everything. It's also the opposite. You hit down to go up. You swing easier to hit harder. Everything is the opposite of what you think it should be. It's counterintuitive. Completely counterintuitive, which is why you can't be a natural at golf. There's no natural golf. It also gets everybody. Everybody has been destroyed by golf and hit by it at one point or another, which is also yet another metaphor for life. I I think that my theory has been that um, people who are very ambitious are attracted to golf because it's unmasterable. Right. I remember asking Tiger Woods once at at the absolute apex of his greatness. He was... During the stretch of time where he probably played the game at a higher level than it had ever been played before or since, I asked him, do you ever walk off a golf course and think to yourself, that was it. That was the best I'm capable of playing. And he said, no, and I never will. Yeah. And that's that was him then. But you know what? The same thing is with books. Every time, you know, I'm trying to reach a state of nirvana in every book. I'm right, you know, I see how the book is going to be, and it's always a slight disappointment to me. So I go back and I write another one. And one day, if I were ever to write that book where I go, oh, my God, I got it completely right this time, I'd probably stop. And I will never reach that stage. You know, I recently had to reread one of my books to be a, a TV series in France. And, I was, and I'm so critical. I'm like, oh, my God, I hate this part. Oh, this part's not bad. You know, but you never write. It's similar to golf in that way also. Like I said, it's, everything's a metaphor. But you're always trying to – one thing that brings me back is I'm always trying to write a better book the best book I can, and I will never write the book I want to write. Do you have a favorite? I remember Jerry Seinfeld, one time I asked him, do you have a favorite episode of Seinfeld? And he said, no, 
That would be like asking me to pick my favorite breath of fresh of air that I've ever breathed. Like I can't. Do you have a favorite yeah, book? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's similar. I usually like the ones that are that are closer, the ones I've more recently read, wrote. One because it's you know it's more it's just better for me. So you buy the hardcover, but <laughs> but more it's just that that book's closer to me. You know, like if you listen to your broadcasts from twenty years ago, you'll go, oh, what did that kid know? He was right. dumb. Like he, even though people will say that's. And then sometimes I'll read my old stuff and go, no, no, you're much better than you suck now, right? So it's the same thing. Uh, I usually like the book that's closest to me. The one I just finished, Runaway, out in March, that's my favorite one right now. My favorite book I've ever written. But then it'll it'll disappear in the, either as I write the next well, one. Well, the best thing that ever happened to me was your last book that you wrote, they sent me ahead of time. So I very much... Oh, you're so on I'm the list now. I'm getting that. You I somehow got on the list. You're on the list. I you're think I, I tweeted a few things about one of that's your books right. and I somehow managed you to get on your publisher's list. You know the first Twitter that somebody showed me that you sent, that you wrote about me, you described the book as being so readable, even Gallic could read it. Is that oh, is what you yeah, said? yeah. And that's, well, that's the highest praise <laughs> I could possibly imagine. So other things that you write about. Yeah. On Twitter. Exercise songs. You, you seem yeah. to be writing a lot. So, so, uh, so now it makes, now that I see you, I understand it. That yeah. you, you ex, I, I, I was thinking to myself, why is this guy writing about songs to exercise to? Because I assumed you were some little nebbishy person. <laughs> now that I see you, I guess I understand it. But it's also music, a safe and there's a lot Twitter. of music in your books. Yeah. There's a lot That's of, true. You, there's, there's a, always yeah. like a lot of music in the yeah. books. Why, where's that coming from? I think from? it's a soundtrack. Look, this is another thing that writers don't like to admit. You and I are, are you know, you are a few years apart, but we both, no matter what you want to say, we grew up with TV, right? Sure. So writers will sit there, who's your influence as well? Proust and Yates. I mean, stop the nonsense. Oscar and Felix meant more to you than Proust and Yates. Sure. And the same with me. So there was always soundtracks on those kind of things. So I've always, a, I like to have a soundtrack in my book. I do see things cinematically. I don't write it to be a TV series or a movie. And if you just straight out made them into them, it would be terrible. But I do see things Cinematically and hear them cinematically. What was your favorite TV show in the seventies growing up? Well, I, 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 the yeah, Odd Couple certainly up there with them, isn't it? Me too. I was thinking the other day. I don't know if it was. I guess it was very late seventies, probably early eighties. What a what a show! Because um, you recently died, Steve Bochco. Hill Street Blues was one of the most revolutionary shows of all time. Yeah, before every, before there were a million cop shows. Before Law and Order, every show that came after that. You know, from St. Elsewhere to The Sopranos to Breaking Bad owes a debt of gratitude to Hill Street Blues. Fair enough. The other thing I noticed about your Twitter feed, very little, if any, nastiness. And one thing I've been asking everyone on this podcast, because I'm very interested in this, is the coarsening of the culture. Yeah. I, there just isn't any question. Yep. And I, we don't do any politics. I'm not asking a political question. Right. I'm asking a societal question. Yep. Is there is just a coarseness to the way I feel people communicate and almost to the way we live and, and, and social media is such a big part of that and it's a huge part of my life, you know, just based on yep. what I do for a living and, yep. and you use it as well. So I, I really am interested to know what do you make of the coarsening of the culture that we live in? Um, I, I think a lot of it is that it's, 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 it's been profitable. So both the right wing and left wing stations have to give you villains. They are, they're telling stories. Whatever your side on, I'm not going to take a side on this. But so you have to have a villain, otherwise people are going to stop watching, right? If, if I'm on Fox saying this guy's doing a great job, or I'm on MSNBC saying he's doing a great job, that's not going to get viewers. So they create villains. You know, they create people, groups, and things like that, villains. And also, you know, so often on social media, just like I, I say to myself, would someone actually say that to me if they were sitting across from me? And the answer is always no. So, and the, and the third thing is, it's, it's, and this is again, it's being self-involved or just trying to be trying to help myself self-serving is that I have readers who are both right-wing and left-wing and I don't want you to go into your book thinking he's a right-wing wacko, he's a left-wing loon because you read the books differently. I want you, you know, whatever side you're on, I want you to escape. And here's the one thing, reading creates empathy. So please, I, I beg people to read, not just because I, I make out by it, but people who read do think more about the other person. They just do. Whatever you're reading. I don't care if it's comic books, I don't care if it's the back of a damn cereal box just keep reading it's really important and and yeah try to be nice try to be you know the coalition of the decent the coalition of the decent yeah i heard that the other day on from from i won't mention who but i thought it was a really good expression for the people we should be the coalition of the decent i like it okay yeah. two more things i have no idea this will be interesting or not okay but i learned two things about you while i was just doing the tiny little bit of research. Okay. I, I want the world to know I do almost no preparation for these interviews <laughs> because you are people I'm interested in, and I knew the reasons I wanted to talk to you. Cool. But I did decide to look you up, 
And so there's two things I learned. Again, we don't do politics. Right. But you grew up with Chris Christie. I did. And, and, and who was, for those who don't know, became the governor of New Jersey and, right. and all of that. What, I need something on that. I need a story. I need it. Chris you, and I have known each other since we were 10 years old. And you still do. We still do. Uh, we were, we played Little League together and were inducted into the Little League Hall of Excellence together and got to throw out the first pitch at the World Series, the Little League World Series, and I think it was 2013 or 14. Not because we were great baseball players, but two, a famous and quasi-famous person was on the same team. They were fascinated by this so Little League. So you played Little League baseball yes, with his, Chris Christie. His father was our coach, and in fact, it's amazing. Little League actually had the form that had our name on it from 1972 or whatever year it was that we actually were on the same Little League team. We were in the same homeroom in seventh grade. We went to high school together. My senior year in high school, this is, he was president of the senior class. I was president of the student council. So we have known each other for a long time. Wow. Yeah. And, and do you have, again, any funny stories and anything, any amusing anecdotes? I mean, anything know, family friendly? I always tell the, the first time we met, um, I had had this illness called rheumatic fever and had not played baseball all season. I came toward the end. I was shy. I didn't know anybody on the team. I was a little nervous about it. And I had not yet met Chris. And Chris comes over to me and puts his arm around me and goes, Harlan, welcome. Like, like a 10 year old would never do. Welcome. Let me introduce you around to the guys. Here's so and so. Here's so and so. This is my father. We're going to have you batting third this game. Do you want to play for, like, who does that when they're a kid? Yeah. You know, he immediately made me feel comfortable and had that ability as a 10 year old. So anyway, that's, there's one quick Chris Christie story. They always make fun of him that, I was the student council, which was the whole school. He was the senior class. But I actually practiced more what he preaches. I was very laissez-faire, small government. I did nothing. One of us, you knew one of us would make up stuff for a living and one of us would go into government. You can decide which one of us makes stuff up for a living. Maybe it's both of us. Maybe it's both of us. That's good. Yeah. And then the other thing that I found that I yeah. did not know, and you were wearing, for those of you listening to us right now, are wearing an Amherst shirt. Yes, I am. You played basketball at Amherst College in, yes. in, in Northampton, Massachusetts. Yes, or Amherst, Amherst, Massachusetts. Amherst, Massachusetts. Right, right there were all the others. Because my wife went to right. UMass, and UMass, there's all the Smith Colleges. Smith, there Mount all those Holyoke, Hampshire, the five college area. Yeah. That, that you were a fraternity brother of Dan Brown? That's correct. Dan Brown. And I, and so I lived... So that's the Da Vinci Code and Angels yes. and Demons and it's all It's even that. stranger. Freshman year, I lived next door to David Foster Wallace. And this is a school that had 400 kids a class. So it's really remarkable. There are, I think in my dorm alone, four, maybe five published authors um, from from that era. Christopher Bojalian was also there. Bill Amond does Foxtrot Comics was there. Susanna Grant, who writes uh, Aaron Bravakovich and a bunch of TV stuff, was there. So it's really a strange sort of thing. But, yes, Dan and I still keep in touch. We play golf. He loves, he loves golf more does than he? anything, Dan. Oh, he loves golf. He loves golf. Um, and See, his books... Guy. His books, yeah. and I love Dan Brown's books yeah. as well. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar, he's, he Mexico. wrote Angels and Demons. And, and, he's the and biggest author Infer- in the world. He's, he's, well, I yes. actually looked this up. My wife and I yes. were talking about this the other day. The Da Vinci Code is the ninth best-selling book in history. <laughs> like I, I would have thought it was more. I thought it was number one, actually. No, it's more. ahead of The Catcher in the Rye, Tons. but it couldn't be more different from yours. And again, I love right. them both. Yep. But yours are so eminently readable. It's like you're sitting next to someone and that person is just telling you a story. Right. And his are like, I feel like someone did a thousand years of research <laughs> and, and to, to, right? And I yeah. mean, and I love him. Yeah. I absolutely love yeah. him. There couldn't be more yeah. different. And he's a great guy, by the he way. He doesn't strike me as a person who would even know of golf. Like oh my he, God, he knows more he, about golf than you and I. He really? Lo- he loves golf. He reads, yeah. and, and again, I say this yes. with, with my credentials as yes. such well intact. He loves golf. Seems like the ultimate academic nerd. He is, but he also loves golf. Really? He is. Yeah, he's, he loves to study. He's a fun guy to hang out with. We have long, ardent arguments about nothing, about religion, culture. He's always interesting to hang with, but he's also a lot of fun. Yeah. But the books are, yeah. you recognize how different they are, right? Yeah, I mean, of course. They, they could both, not be we're more both writing thrillers. In fact, I was one of the first people to read Da Vinci Code because Dan was an unknown. He sent it to me to do that blurbing thing that we all, sure. all know. And I was like, holy crap, this is really good, Dan. This is, and I started that was to Da Vinci see Code. It. Yeah, and I remember I, Because Angels and Demons was written before, before that. But I hadn't actually read written a, he wrote a few books before that yep. that I went back and read. Yep. Actually pretty good. Digital Fortress. Yeah, he wrote a few. Um, but Da Vinci Code was the big breakout, and I remember him sending it to me, and I, and then I, saw, I started to see it happen before it was happening. And, and one of the things, uh, off the topic a little bit, is when you break out, it really messes with your head. As a writer, I, I guess the same thing, I can't imagine those actors who are 20 or 21 become super famous, but when you're, when you have that book that breaks out, 
it screws with your head. And I remember calling him saying, keep your head down. Try to write the next one because your head's about to get – I had no idea how, to quite How does this it screw thing. with your head? It just does. Like any kind of fame thing does. I mean, fame screws with people's heads. Um, I'm lucky that in my case, I was all, uh, my late 30s when I first had a, a bestseller. And it's not like you're an actor. No one recognizes you. No one bothers you. But fame of any sort, it you know, and that's why the paralysis of writing – you see, when someone writes a huge book, their next book takes a long time to come out because you get more paralyzed from the, the fame, the expectations, all of that sort of thing. It distracts you. You're having fun with it in some ways, too, perhaps. But you really have to keep your head on. Hollywood starts calling. I remember when Tell No One Hit uh, it was bought for a lot of money early on. All of a sudden, they wanted to fly me out there and hear my ideas and talk to me about something else. And my publisher wisely told me, it's all nonsense. This is Hollywood. Just put your head down and keep writing your books. And, and I did. That's interesting to me because I, they always say this about money. And I think that it is even more true about fame, which is it does not change who you are. It reveals who you are. Yeah. So I think that if you become famous, you just become more because you can be, you are indulged into becoming sort of whatever it is you yeah. want to be as opposed to trying to be whatever it is you think you need to be to become that. Once you become that now, you can just be who you are. So I've always felt that sort of, um, I don't know how it would apply specifically to how you write, but I, I feel like it, 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 it reveals who a person truly is when they become rich or they become famous or right. in some cases both. I can't, and, and again, it's easier when you're a little older and you don't have that kind of limelight. I, I feel for those kind of the Justin Bieber, the kids that are out in the, in the limelight because it messed with my head a little bit and you start thinking about a whole different world. I can't even imagine what it would be like for those guys. Again, I, that's my job to imagine it and then write about it. But, you know, it does mess with your head. So whenever anything messes with my head in life, my key is to get back to the keyboard or I write on paper. I write both. You asked before. I do both. Um, while I was driving here, I have, I'm actually writing on paper right now. Most of the time now, I'm going straight on a laptop. But, I, but the, the great thing about writing on paper, just quickly for people, is that you're, I don't count it as pages until I put it on the computer. So my first draft is actually my second draft. Something freeing and childlike about hand to paper. So I'm writing it on paper. I wrote maybe 10 or 15 pages. Then I put it on my computer. So again, I'm, I'm rewriting as I'm doing it. I'm not afraid to cross out. When you delete something on a computer, it's gone forever. When you cross out, you can still kind of read it. You can sure. draw arrows. So I do recommend, again, whatever makes you write. The key to writing is whatever makes you write. If, if it's standing on your head at 3 in the morning, do that. Whatever, waking up late at night, early in the morning, there's no right answer. The Always the answer is whatever's making you write more. It's always the answer. Well, as I always say, I, I hope that these conversations are as interesting for everyone listening as they are for me. This is something I've wanted to do for the longest time. The, the, the joke that my wife makes is I only started this podcast so I could meet a bunch of people <laughs> that I wanted to meet. So it is, uh, I've been reading your books now for, I didn't come to them until later. As I say, I started reading thrillers because I decided I needed right. to write one. So I think I've read probably 15 of your books in the last three years well, thanks uh and i love them and, and so thanks, it is man. just a pleasure to meet you and thank you what very much for doing this thank and you I'm I a really fan too so it's it. been great i really thank it. you very thanks, much man. and so my thanks to harlan coben for a very interesting conversation this week he's someone that i really admire and this was really one of the reasons i wanted to do this podcast was to have the opportunity to do some interviews that went just outside the sports world so i thank him for taking the time and i thank you for making the time and for listening to this conversation i hope you found it as interesting as i did I also thank everyone who listened to the Zach Lowe podcast and anyone else. And I would remind you that you can listen in our archives to our entire season. We've had great conversations all through this entire fall with figures from both inside and outside of the sports world. I hope that you have found them as interesting as I have. And in the archives, you can hear any of those interviews. And I would ask you as well, if you have a moment, to please take a time to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm interested with Mike Greenberg. Subscribe, rate, and review You'd be helping us out enormously. And with that, I say again, thank you for your time. I'm Mike Greenberg, and I'll talk to you next week.